This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show. We will be joined in a few moments by Dania Elihu Kramer, who is the producing artistic director of the Chester Theater. You want to hear what's going on at the Chester Theater. It's really quite an amazing production. We'll also be joined later on in the show by Larry Hott, our Emmy Award-winning local producer, local filmmaker, and Natalia Munoz. First, we need to address what happened yesterday in the United States Congress. Front page of the New York Times reflecting what is in the media across the country today, top of the fold, Huge headline and a big photograph, a large photograph of the woman who made the news, Cassidy, Cassidy Hutchinson. Enraged Trump encouraged violence and sought to join mob aid testifies, testifies insider account of a president's volatility with these sentences. In a fly-on-the-wall anecdotes, in fly-on-the-wall anecdotes delivered in a quiet voice, she uh, Cassidy Hutchison, described how frantic West Wing aides failed to stop Mr. Trump from encouraging the violence or persuade him to try to end it, and how the White House top lawyer feared that Mr. Trump might be committing crimes as he steered the country to the brink of a constitutional crisis. Drawing from conversations she overheard she said she overheard, in the West Wing and others contemporaneously relayed to her by top officials, Ms. Hutchinson, a 26-year-old who was an aide to Mark Meadows, Mr. Trump's final chief of staff, provided crucial details about what the former president was doing and saying before and during the riot. She painted a portrait of an unhinged president obsessed with clinging to power and appearing strong and willing to tolerate violence as a result as long as it was not directed at him. Wow. I remember the testimony of John Dean and what it felt like to hear what was happening in the Nixon presidency. It was extraordinary to watch. I remember watching it on a black and white television um, because at the time I was not clear that I could afford or that it was necessarily a big coming thing, that color television. Could thing. be a fad. Yeah. Um, and anyway... Black and white televisions were only about a third or a quarter of the cost at that point. So, uh, And it was watching how democracy could resurrect itself, how it was self-correcting in some ways. That's what John Dean's testimony was. <clears throat> John Dean yesterday said about uh, Cass Cassidy, Cassidy, Hutchinson. Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony, said, just wait, they're going to come after her. That's what happens next. And it is what's going to happen next because she said something that testified to something that what she said was true, which is this is what she was told. But it, apparently the Secret Service is, or Secret Service agents are going to testify that while he said, bring me to the Capitol, he did not grab the steering wheel and try to commandeer the car, which is what she was told, which may or may not be accurate. And she didn't say, I saw it, I know it, or, but she said, I heard it. Um, but um, they'll go after her and say, see, it's all fake news. It's all made up. But this was riveting, riveting testimony. If he doesn't grab the steering wheel, isn't everything else that he has that has been said in these hearings and, frankly, everything he's done since the beginning of the campaign damning enough? How damning does damning have to be just because he potentially assaulted a Secret Service agent? Damning enough to whom? To the nation? 
what nation? Trump nation may not care at all. Is this entire panel in televising these hearings barely meant for the American public, but mostly meant for Merrick Garland? Are they trying to deliver to Merrick Garland on a silver platter everything he would need to do to indict someone who has been a president of the United States, but doing it openly enough so that if Merrick Garland was launching his own investigation, which he likely is at the same time, but not letting that information out to the public, then he would be considered on a witch hunt, fake news, etc. But if everything is aired out like this in public, is this really all just a long form television show for Merrick Garland? It's a really interesting point and a really interesting question, Monty. I think there are two, two audiences here. One is that sliver of the United States voting public that is persuadable. And as the cult of Trump uh, has taken hold in the country, uh, that sliver has become smaller and smaller. It doesn't matter what Trump does. It doesn't matter what he says. He's a dictator. He's a wannabe dictator. And frankly, um, they don't care. They actually want it. Um, they don't care what he does, what he says. Uh, the destruction of liberty in the United States doesn't matter as long as Trump, our great leader, can take over the country and rule as the strong man that he wants to be and they want him to be, the United States version of Putin. But there are moderate Republicans in the suburbs, to paint with an overly broad brush, who do care, who are persuadable. They tend to be women voters, and they may be enough to deny him the support of the Republicans sufficient so that he is not the Republican nominee in the next presidential election. That's possible. And that is one, one of the audiences here. Actually, there's a third audience here, Monty. Let's yes. get to the third audience. The third audience is Donald Trump himself. And Donald Trump is watching this saying, OMG, I could lose. I may not run and maybe I shouldn't because I could lose. Of course, the other is I have to run and I have to win because I have to pardon myself. Uh, but that's the, that's the second audience here. And the third audience, as you point out, is Merrick Garland. And Merrick Garland is going to be in an extremely difficult position because after these hearings, how can you not indict this conspirator, the leader of the conspiracy, to undermine and destroy the American system of government? Well, one answer is, in this system of government, we don't go after and imprison our former leaders. And that is a serious, serious matter. And Merrick Garland is confronted with that because that makes the United States look very much like a dictatorship, the one that we are trying to avoid. Exile is always a good option. It worked for Napoleon for a little while. <laughs> well, let's not send an email to Merrick Garland about that. But let's, let's, let's do close with this. Uh, Cassidy Hutchinson is 20, was 26 years old. She was an aide to Mark Meadows, Trump's final chief of staff. 
She got up in front of the Congress and she did something that dozens and hundreds of Republicans, elected officials, high officials and highest positions in our government do not have the guts to do, which is to tell the truth. Congratulations to her. It's going to be a rough road, but we are all in your debt. Cassidy Hutchinson. We'll be right back. This is the truth of who I am. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And it's taken me my whole life to celebrate. I won't go back. You can Come on over to the co-op, the Greenfield Cooperative Bank. Hi, I'm Jay Sealer, Vice President, Commercial Lending at the Greenfield Cooperative Bank and Northampton Co-op Bank Division. Our experienced local commercial lenders are here for you and your business. Hi, I'm Laura Guzik, Vice President and Commercial Loan Officer. Did you know GCB is a SBA preferred lender? And unlike other banks, each of our team members has individual lending authority for fast local decisions. And I'm Adam Baker, Vice President, Commercial Lending. We're here to help your business grow with commercial loans and lines of credit. You can reach any of our experienced commercial loan officers by phone or at bestlocalbank.com. We'd be happy to meet with you at your business or at any of our Franklin and Hampshire County locations. Come on over to the co-op. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender. Member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. Every Friday morning, Monty visits the wine snobs to talk about wine at State Street. But I don't see wine here, Ringo. What do you got? Well, who am I? You're the spirit guy. Uh-oh. So you're taking me down the road of spirit. So our next whiskey is from High Coast. It's called Have, H-A-V, which means sea, like the ocean. Where's High Coast? Sweden. What? The Swedish whiskey. Have. And this one was in uh, the top whiskeys of the year list. It was number six. Wow. You're right? Swedish whiskey. I mean, I know they have really good food there because of the Swedish chef. Yeah. Naturally. Bork, bork. You have to assemble this whiskey all by yourself without any instructions. That's the <laughs> thing about it. They trap you in this big box and then they give you like just diagrams of what you're supposed to do with it. Yeah, just pictures of grains. It's whiskey from Sweden, from High Coast. And how much is this one? You can have this one for $57.99. I like what you there see and that's a good price too find your favorite whiskey and your next favorite whiskey at state street do you know what's happening this friday at 9 a.m is this week's shop friday jackalope correct they go on sale this friday at 9 a.m full value gift certificates and you save 30 percent Enjoy fine dining in downtown Springfield, Black Angus Flame Mignon, Crab Cake Stuffed Jumbo Shrimp, Bolognese, Bear Island Salmon, and vegans are welcome too. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. The Northampton Community Music Center provides quality, accessible music education to more than a thousand members of the greater Northampton community. Hi, this is Jason Trotta, Executive Director of the Northampton Community Music Center. Our scholarship fund helps those with limited means access affordable music instruction and has never turned away a qualifying applicant in its 33 years of existence. To find out how you can help, please visit our website at ncmc.net. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. As listeners who have been with us in years past know, I love the Chester Theater. I love the productions. They are so just 
magnificent, brilliantly produced, many are funny, many are poignant, all are, almost all are just fabulous theatrical productions. We have with us today Daniel Elihu Kramer, who is the producing artistic director of the Chester Theater, to tell us about the production that's there, and very much his production this time. Daniel, tell us what the production is. We'll get to how you can see it and buy tickets in a minute. But first, tell us about it because it's really interesting. I haven't seen it yet. Often I do see these before, see the productions before we have you on the show. But tell us about this one, please. Well, thanks, Bill. And Bill, obviously, thanks for having me on. It's a treat to be here. So uh, this play is called Pride at Prejudice. And the at in that title is the little at sign you would use for an email address. And it is an adaptation, it is many things. It's an adaptation of Jane Austen's novel, Pride and Prejudice. Uh, but other source material in it includes Jane Austen's own letters and also the endless, obsessive, astonishing, heartfelt, ridiculous online chatter, conversation, debate uh, about both the novel and Jane Austen herself. So do we have Jane Austen? Online? Well, we have Jane Austen on stage. Um, so uh, it, we, it is, first off, it's a telling of the story of Pride and Prejudice, uh, but done by five actors playing multiple characters. Um, we also see Jane Austen herself speaking from her letters. Uh, but there's also a ton of source material drawn directly from online in which people try to interpret the book, ask for help reading the book, talk about Jane Austen's <laughs> life, explain why they hate a given character, try to understand better how the characters are related to each other, etc. Okay, so tell us a bit about the uh, author of this play. Well, I don't I mean, know he's that I'm... Brilliant. He's brilliant, he's insightful, he did incredible research, he has this amazing resume with regard to theater. Tell us about him. So in an act of astonishing hubris, uh, <laughs> I opened our return season in the town hall because this is our first season back on our own home in three years with a play that I wrote. Uh, <laughs> so I won't describe the author except to say he apparently had the nerve to program his own work. It was easy to get the rights. <laughs> you know, it was. And one of the steps I actually did was this is a published script, so normally the rights would go through that publisher. And I reached out to them and I said, I think I'm not supposed to get royalties if I'm the one who makes the play happen. So could we do it for free this time, please? Um, <laughs> And this play was done at Chester Theatre Company 11 years ago before I had any formal association with the theater. It was the first production under this name of the play. And so it felt like in a season that is a homecoming for us after three years, uh, a kind of a production that could be a homecoming as well. And also an invitation to folks who maybe met us for the first time last summer when we performed under the tent at Hancock Shaker Village. Okay. So for those who met the Chester Theater Company at Hancock Shaker Village last year, and it was the, the productions under the tent were actually spectacular. I, I was skeptical at the beginning what this would work, would this work outdoors? It did. Um, but now you're coming home to the Chester Theater, which is in the old town hall in Chester. Has uh, that been an emotional experience for you, for the cast, for the company? Absolutely. It has been amazing to be back. And, you know, we realized to our own surprise, in a sense, it's really been three years. Uh, and that's a long time away from home. We also realized occasionally that we can't remember how we do anything. <laughs> There's an awful lot of like, wait, how do we set up the seats again? What, you know, we have charts and photographs and we've created our own manuals and yet it's still somewhat mystifying. 
but it's been amazing. It's been wonderful for us. I think it's been great for the town. It's been great to be truly based in our own home again. You know, I, I always make the claim that our motto really ought to be Chester Theater Company, 40 beautiful minutes from anywhere. Yes. <laughs> because the trip there is a gorgeous trip, and it really is wonderful to be back in that place where we feel we belong. Tell me about this aspect of, of the play uh, Pride at Prejudice. One aspect of the Chester Theater productions is that they have a limited number of actors involved, two, three, four, five. I don't know if they've seen a play with more than that, but you do something amazing with those limited number of actors. And this play sounds particularly intense where five actors are playing multiple roles, like two or three each. How does that work? Yeah, so the five actors combined play probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 characters across them. So it's pretty crazy. Um, in some cases, they'll have one or two primary characters who you will mostly see them as. In other cases, you'll see them switching all the time. Also, the actors never leave the stage except at intermission. So it is an astonishing workout for them. And I think one of the real pleasures of watching the production is seeing their work, seeing their skill, and also just the fun of watching people flip from one thing to another. You said, uh, Daniel, that the play is about Jane Austen, but is it also a play that has a narrative arc in and of itself? Absolutely. The central narrative line of the play is the narrative line of the novel itself, Pride and Prejudice. So if you know the book and you love the story of Elizabeth Bennet and Mr. Darcy, then that is absolutely the story that's at the center of this production. If you've never read the book or you tried and found it confusing, this is your opportunity to both enjoy it being embodied and have some people explain it at the same time. Okay, so why is Pride and Prejudice such a famous novel? What, 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 what is its uh, underlying... Well, why, that's my question, really. Why is it? And is it really a great novel? So I'd say a couple things. First off, I think it's an amazing novel. I think it's one of the great comic novels of English literature, which I say from my, my high... You know, throne well, of knowing a, all about English literature. As apparently. the author, as the playwright. I, no, as no, the no, producer. no. I'm not talking about the play. I'm talking about Jane Austen's novel now, Bill. Okay. It's an amazing book. I think that it stayed popular for a bunch of reasons. I think that for a long time it has been seen as a quote women's novel, which I think is an incredibly limited way to look at it. We have had a tendency to say that novels that are actually about our day to day lives aren't somehow important enough, whereas, of course, our day-to-day -day lives are where our energy actually goes, right? Our desire for connection, our desire to find somebody with whom we can imagine making our lives, those seem to me pretty major things, and that this is a novel that deals with them in ways that are really funny, in ways that are really insightful, in ways that understand so much, and wow, what a, what a couple of weeks to be on this, uh, the precarity of women's lives within social structures that limit the kinds of options available to them. So all of that is at work in a novel that also has just some of the funniest dialogue you will ever, ever read. And Pride at Prejudice tracks the arc of the novel as itself? Absolutely. You are there to see that story brought to life. In, in the a, 21st century? Brought to life in Regency England, brought to life in the early 1800s with constant, constant is wrong, with frequent interjection from the 21st century. 
So it's kind of a commentary on what we're seeing at the time that we're seeing it and being part of the commentary as well, something like that? Something like that. I would say that we are deep in the story at times, and then there are moments, I'll give one example. There's a moment where Darcy comes to propose to Elizabeth, which he does more than once in the novel, and the first time he does it, he says a very famous line. He says, you must allow me to tell you how ardently I admire and love you. And just as he's preparing to say the next part of it, uh, somebody runs past him holding a mug on which those words are emblazoned and makes a pitch to sell it to us. <laughs> tell us who the Can actor- you actually buy the, mu- the mug? <laughs> you know, I-, I could arrange it, Monty. It could be done. You don't have them in the gift shop on the way out. Alas, no. Oh, yeah. The quality of the acting at the Chester Theater is something that we have to note. Who are the actors? So yeah, you know, I think first off, I'll just say, Bill, I think the three things I've figured out, there are three words I would use that are the central part of what you get to experience at Chester, and they are stories, performances, conversations, right? Great stories, great performances, great conversations. Uh, These actors are an amazing group. A couple of them have been with us before. Candace Barrett-Burke, who was in our last production of Last Summer, Tiny Beautiful Things, which was an amazing play. Yeah, it really was. Um, Luke Hoffmeyer, who did a play a few years ago called Now Circa Then, which was set in a tenement museum, uh, is back in this. And Marielle Young, who's done a couple of plays with us, both The Night Alive and Mary's Wedding. Then beyond that, we have a wonderful actor named Claire Fort, whose sister was in a show of ours a number of years ago. That this, this is Claire's first time with us. Uh, and then playing Mr. Darcy, Brian Patterson, and it is his first time at Chester as well, though I directed him earlier this year in a play at Bridge Street Theater in New York. Tell us how to buy tickets. So there are a couple of quick ways, chestertheater.org, and theater there is R-E, and you can just click through and buy tickets there, or just give us a call at the box office, 413-354-7771. Say it again. 413-354-7771, or chestertheater.org. You mentioned, and we mentioned, that the Chester Theater is in the old town hall. For those who have not been there, this is a beautiful refurbished building. Uh, and I think it's worth a half a minute to tell people about that. So one of the great things about being there is that you really have that feeling of coming together in a town hall, almost in the style of a town meeting or something, right? That place where we can all come together. We go in each summer, we convert the auditorium into a really full theater space uh, with risers, with a beautiful stage extension and proscenium, uh, also with upgraded ventilation. Yes. Uh, just to mention, um, and do so much to make it a welcoming place. And I think that it is one of the most personal theater experiences you can have out here. Yes. It's like being there with the actors. It's like being just, it's like being in your living room, watching this happening around you. It's really just an amazing experience. I just love the Chester Theater. We've been speaking with Daniel Elihu Kramer, who is the producing artistic director of the Chester Theater. One more time, where we buy take? Oh, when the productions are. So we go back into performance this afternoon, and this is our last week. So there are seven performances left, including including today. And Sunday, July 3rd, will be the final performance. Again, it's 413-354-7771. So there's a matinee today? Then two shows tomorrow, then an evening show Friday, two shows Saturday, and a matinee Sunday. Thank you so very much, Daniel. Break a leg. Thanks so much, Bill. This is Bill Newman, WHMP.
For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Smith College professor Carrie Baker is speaking out in the wake of the Supreme Court's decision overturning Roe v. Wade. Baker says women have become subordinate to what the court describes over 23 times as unborn human persons. We have to serve the interests of those unborn human persons for the duration of a pregnancy with no rights to be able to control what happens inside of our body or to our body, even if carrying that pregnancy can injure our health and otherwise harm us. The Supreme Court ruled to overturn Roe v. Wade last Friday, holding that there is no longer a federal constitutional right to abortion. A fire in Bernardston shut down parts of South Street this morning and left the former Four Leaf Clover restaurant damaged. The fire started around 2 a.m. at the Falltown Grill, which was formerly the Four Leaf. There were no reported injuries and the fire is now under control. The fire was contained to just the structure. No information is available on what caused the fire. A former Franklin County biology teacher and U.S. Postal Service worker will spend 15 years in federal prison for his second conviction on child pornography charges. 65-year-old Brian Cooper of Turner's Falls pleaded guilty in January to multiple charges related to child pornography. Cooper was a longtime biology teacher in the Athol Orange school system and was working as a clerk at the U.S. Postal Service in Turner's Falls at the time of his arrest. He was sentenced Monday. Mostly sunny today with highs in the low to mid-80s. Shower chances this evening looking dry both Thursday and Friday with temperatures in the 90s on Friday. Showers and storms Saturday. Right now, your 4th of July on Monday is looking nice. I'm Nick Oresco on 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rechivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Cuando el presidente Donald Trump se enteró de que su fiscal general había rechazado públicamente sus afirmaciones de fraude electoral, arrojó su almuerzo contra la pared con tanta fuerza que el plato de porcelana se hizo añicos y la salsa de tomate se derramó. En la mañana del 6 de enero de 2021, consumido por las preocupaciones sobre el tamaño de la multitud, ordenó al personal en términos profanos que retiraran los detectores de metales que pensó que frenarían a los simpatizantes que se habían reunido en Washington para un discurso. No importa que algunos estuvieran armados, no estaban allí para lastimarlo, dijo. Y más tarde ese día, enojado por ser conducido de regreso a la Casa Blanca en lugar del Capitolio, Trump pronunció palabras en el sentido de «Soy el maldito presidente, llévame al Capitolio ahora» y agarró el volante del vehículo presidencial. El temperamento volcánico de Trump ha sido materia de tradición a lo largo de su carrera en los negocios, pero durante su presidencia rara vez se ha descrito con un detalle tan sugerente como en el testimonio del martes de Cassidy Hutchinson, una empleada subalterna de la Casa Blanca cuya proximidad con el entonces presidente y los mejores asistentes ese día le dieron una vista notablemente cercana. Hutchinson ofreció detalles previamente desconocidos sobre el alcance de la ira de Trump en sus últimas semanas en el cargo, su conocimiento de que algunos partidarios habían traído armas y su ambivalencia cuando los amotinados sitiaron el Capitolio. El testimonio se produjo cuando el Departamento de Justicia amplía su investigación sobre la insurrección y profundizó, pero no resolvió, las dudas sobre si el propio Trump podría enfrentar cargos penales por su conducta. Aunque el fiscal general Merrick Garland no ha dado pistas sobre si su departamento presentará un caso penal contra Trump, algunos expertos legales dijeron que el testimonio de Hutchinson podría brindar a los fiscales hechos adicionales para investigar. Yo soy Johan Rashivega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. 
This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And we welcome back to the studio Larry Hott, Florence-based Emmy Award-winning filmmaker. We wanted Larry here today because I know he's been working on a new film, and I thought it would be really interesting to hear about not only what it is, but how you make a film. So, Larry, let's start at the beginning of this story, or at least close to the beginning. Tell us what the film is, why you're making it, who is it being made for, and what the arc of the story is. I, I like the introduction, how you make a film. In 10 minutes, <laughs> anyone could do it. No, 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 can, we, don't, we don't have 10 minutes for that part it. of the story. <laughs> you take out your iPhone, <laughs> yeah, go to that video button. That's, that's what I use. It's so much cheaper these days. All right. So the background is I've been making films for 43 years, most of them for PBS. And in the last 10, 15 years, I've been doing a lot of films for the Buffalo TV station. It's, it's Buffalo Toronto, WNED. The Buffalo... PBS station. Yes. And uh, the way PBS works is 375 or so stations around the country, but only a handful of them do national productions. Uh, people think that PBS actually makes the films, but what PBS does is provides the broadcast for the films, and Corporation of Public Broadcasting in general provides some of the money for the films, and a lot of the stations have to raise their money themselves. So this station in Buffalo uh, that I've made many films for came to me and said... Was it your film about Niagara Falls? One of I've those? made two films about Niagara Falls and three other films that involve Niagara Falls. And I have to say, as lovely as Niagara Falls is, I don't want to go back there ever again. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to say, slowly I turn every time I hear Step Niagara Falls. That. So. That's how we ended our first Niagara <sighs> Falls film, Good. The Three Stooges. So I got a call, and, and this is uh, why this is relevant, um, at least to my life story, is that I had retired three times. And <laughs> the third time I'm coming out of retirement was to do with this film for Buffalo Public Television. And they called and said, are you interested in going back to work? And bef before I knew what the subject was, I said, sure. <laughs> Tell because me. you know these folks. Well, I know these folks. I've worked with them many times. It'll be my, this is my fifth film for them. And then they told me what the subject was. It's the Niagara Movement is the name. of, the, And I said, what is that? I thought, you know, I've done all these films on Niagara. Not another. There's a lot film. of advertisements for it, like on sporting events, and like you're supposed to call your doctor. Oh, the, the, yes. The, well, you, that's the Viagra the, the, movement. The, the, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, spelling is really important, Monty. <laughs> oh, God. So, okay. <laughs> Please, Larry, go okay, on. Okay. Okay. So the <laughs> the story, the subject matter, basically, is this. Uh, in, the, in the Niagara movement, let's, let's, let's be clear, very serious, very important, a part of American history that somehow it, it, gets overlooked. In it gets overlooked. Because, well, let me tell you what the, what the story is. Sure. Uh, the Niagara movement was a civil rights movement. It was very short-lived, but it was very important. Uh, it came about 1905 to 1909 or so, only a, only a few years. It is the precursor for the NAACP. So why did the NAACP come about? Well, you have to go back in history, and now you can go all the way back to the beginning of the founding of, of the United States, but really what happens is after the Civil War, we have Reconstruction, and things seem to look better for the African-American community, but then through a series of events and elections, Reconstruction ends, and horrors begin once again for the black community. And there are several... Right, it's the reimposition of slavery without the legal authority right. to have Slavery slaves. by another name. Uh, many films and books about the, the peonage and, and Jim Crow, but a lot, of, what a, a lot of people don't know 
is how much agitation there was in the African-American community across the United States to do something about it. So this film is actually about three main characters. And you know, when it's axiomatic for any documentary film, you better have a story. Right? <laughs> a lot of documentary filmmakers don't realize this. They just think subject. Let's find a subject. But without a story within the subject, nobody pays attention for more than a couple of minutes. So when I heard the words Niagara Movement, and it was a precursor of the NAACP, my first thought, of course, was what is the story behind this? And you can't have a story without characters. And luckily, we have great characters in this. And the characters are people, uh, two of whom everybody's heard about, W.E.B. Du Bois. Well, I say everybody, but any, anybody knows any history of America at all knows about W.E.B. Du Bois, who conveniently grew up in Great Barrington, uh, went, to, went to Harvard in Cambridge, uh, and had a lot to do with Boston. So for me to be asked to do a film on uh, W.E.B. Du Bois was a real grif gift because it's local. And then the other character that a lot of people have heard about is Booker T. Washington, who is sometimes referred to as the Wizard of Tuskegee. Tuskegee, the Institute in Montgomery, Alabama, or nearby, is a place that he basically built out of nothing. In fact, when he was asked to come there and start the school, it was nothing but a chicken shack there. Uh, now, a little backstory there, Booker T. Washington, who was probably one of the, at the time, uh, beginning of the 20th century, the most famous African-American in the country, he was asked by Alabamians during this period, just before the vote was taken away from blacks in Alabama, to found this school because they wanted the black vote for the Democrats. Can you imagine? Right. So they put him in there as a figurehead and then he builds it into this enormous, powerful educational institution. And the story begins when in 1895, he gives a speech which was dubbed the Atlantic Compromise, where he says to a crowd of white people, blacks should be subservient. They should learn trades. They should become carpenters, plumbers, farmers. They only need to be educated enough to read and write. We do not want to challenge white people for their jobs. And he gets such support. People were actually broke down in tears at this speech. Andrew Carnegie, you know, the, the, the famous steel magnate, decides to support him in his school, gives him the equivalent of tens of millions of dollars, including the equivalent of millions of dollars just for him to support him. And he becomes this powerhouse. And at the time, other African-Americans are saying, okay, this seems to make sense because we need to take our steps slowly, right? And therein lies a tension and a fight that occurred in the civil rights movement. Right, and the big tension is, what's obvious to people over time is that this compromise isn't working because lynching... And it's a sellout. It's a sellout, right. And he's accused at the time of being an Uncle Tom, you know, a, very loaded, a very loaded phrase. And... W.B. Du Bois and a guy out of Boston named William Monroe Trotter, who is a wealthy real estate magnate in Boston, an African-American man, who is uh, one of the top students in his youth at Harvard. He combines with W.B. Du Bois to say, this will not stand. We cannot have Booker T. Washington representing us while all these depredations are happening while we are being murdered in the streets. Right, there are, and lynchings. Lynchings. Lynchings at a rate of hundreds a year, amounting to actually thousands. 
So I am tasked with making a film out of this. What an incredible challenge. Okay, right? go, just go back for one second. The Niagara Movement. I understand we have the characters, the historical Why figures, is it called the Niagara w. Movement? W.E.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington. Right, what's it called? Why is it called the Niagara Movement? And why is it a movement? Okay, well, big questions. Easy question, easy answer first. W.E.B. Du Bois and Monroe Trotter decide that they want to bring together the top men. It's a very important men here. 59 men they choose. They call them the Talented Tenth. And they're looking for a place to do it. And they decide on Buffalo for a whole variety of reasons. One, the, the, I think the funniest reason is that the rates to get to Buffalo were cheaper than anybody else. Right? <laughs> but also, there had just been the Pan-American Pan Exposition in 1901, which had an exhibit called the Old Slave Plantation, right? which basically ridiculed and mocked African Americans. And the, the women in Buffalo who were part of the National Association of uh, Colored Women, I think it was called, were so incensed at this that they asked W.B. Du Bois, who was a famous sociologist, to come and counter this, this uh, uh, demonstration or these exhibits that, that made African Americans look bad. The exhibit had also been at the Paris Exposition a couple of years before. So Du Bois comes to Buffalo, gets to see that there's people there who support him and his philosophy, and he thinks this would be a good place for us to have our first meeting. Buffalo is 20 miles from Niagara. They've always embraced it because if they associate with Niagara, they get the overflow from the tourist industry. So they call it the Buffalo-Niagara region, right? At the same time, there's a struggle over power, literal power, electric power at Niagara, a struggle between Tesla and Edison about what, whether it's going to be direct current or alternating current. This gets a lot of press. So Niagara becomes associated with power. And in fact, the Niagara movement, as, it's, as they dub themselves, because they want to take advantage of the name Niagara, they have a subtitle, which is convenient for any documentary film. You always need a subtitle. It's a PBS law. It's <laughs> the Niagara movement, colon, a mighty current of protest. That's what they call themselves. And the first mighty picture that they take is a picture of the, of the five or six key founders with a backdrop of Niagara Falls which is also typical of, of the tourist industry in Niagara Falls. you got the falls right there, but you actually go into a photo studio and take a picture with the backdrop of the falls. And this is the signature photo of the Niagara movement. You've been filming. Uh, give us a minute. Tell us a minute of where, and then I want to know when, this, when we're going to be able to see this film. So, I, so I spent all of May traveling around the United States. Um, I have a great crew. I have... Uh, People say, okay, you know, you're uh, an old white man. Why are you producing this film? Well, there's a, there's a history there. Um, Which we'll do on another show. Okay. So, uh, but I have a, a, a great crew, very diverse crew. We traveled all around the United States um, finding, well, we already knew, uh, but interviewing the people who know the most about this. Uh, luckily, there's plenty of them in Massachusetts, uh, but all over the United States, biographers of uh, William Mon Monroe Trotter, biographers of W.B. Du, du Bois, like David Levering Lewis, who won a Pulitzer Prize for a two-volume biography of, of Du Bois, and then, of course, many biographers of, of Booker T. Washington. So the film is basically about the conflict between these three men, why the Niagara Movement rises to prominence, why it collapses and falls apart, and out of the ashes rises the phoenix, the NAACP. And how, what is the legacy? The legacy is literally the Brown versus Board of Education and the civil rights movement that we have today. Wow. When are we going to be able to see this film? 
well, um, by contract, I should be finishing the film at the, <laughs> by the end of this year, and it will be scheduled probably in the spring by PBS, and I can keep you posted about that. Spring of? 2023, just around the corner. That is just around the corner. Yeah. Is this fast for making a it's, film? Well, it's very fast because generally it takes, my, my films average five years and sometimes eight years. A lot of that is raising the money. The station spent 15 years raising the money and then came to me. So for me, it's like, get started, deadline is tomorrow. So I had to do the research and dive into it. And now we're just about to start editing. What's called post-production? Post-production is called editing. I know it sounds confusing. It's like you've done and then it's post-production. But post-production is after you've done the principal cinematography, then you go into editing. So we just uh, we opened the editing room on August 1st. We're working on the what we call the assembly script right now, uh, which is putting together all the interviews. And it's we'll the interviews you've done interspersed with, I take it, with archival material? Yeah, in fact, the biggest challenge on this film is there's very few photographs and almost no motion picture footage from this period, about 1895 to 1910. So what we're going to do is we're going to animate almost the entire film. So I'm working with my ace animator uh, and gives us actually great freedom, scary freedom, because we can do anything we want. Uh, we will rotoscope, which means we'll take the real photographs and, and animate them, make, make them move. We can create the scenes. As if they're real. As if, as if they're real, right. Wow. And the, the challenge is how, with animation, how cartoon-like can it be or should it be? Or do you make it a hyper-realistic? Uh, what's the look? And basically, it's, it's all, of, all of art. It could be anything. It could be abstract. It could be watercolor. It could be gouache. You know, we're not sure exactly what look we're going to have. Um, and that's the fun of it as well. I can't wait. Larry Hart will be back with us in coming weeks to discuss this film more. Thank you so much, Larry Hart. Thanks, Bill. Really Thanks, Matthew. Good it. seeing you. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. We have a very unique and lethal combination of emboldened white supremacy in this country and unfettered access to guns. We need to keep talking about the intersection of white supremacy and guns. Guns are used in order to, you know, elicit fear and power and control by white supremacists. And it's not an issue that's going away easily. 101.5, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Your weed eater. We mean weed whacker, but weed eater fits better in this ad. Makes life simpler. Well, now the mortgage eater from Franklin First does that as well. Franklin First reintroduces the mortgage eater loan. The loan that pays off your first mortgage or works as a second mortgage to give you financial flexibility. Mortgage eater loans start at five-year terms and have no closing costs. So visit franklinfirst.org, get all the details, and apply online. Franklin First Federal Credit Union, member NCUA, equal housing lender. Dinner tonight starts with a tap. Tap the local hero guide on the CISA website and find farm fresh food close to where you are. There are so many farms and farm stands just minutes away. Look for the bright yellow local hero label in stores and restaurants. Local hero food, the beauty and the bounty of our fertile river valley farmlands on your dinner table tonight. The local hero guide is at the CISA website, buylocalfood.org. Hi, I'm Kate Kelly, public health nurse with the City of Northampton. 
The Northampton Health Department is holding vaccination clinics in Northampton and other locations in the region. Outdoor walk-in availability has reopened at the Northampton High School. Dates, locations, and appointments for all clinic sites can be found at the City of Northampton website. Go to www.northamptonma.gov and click on Vaccine Clinics. The clinics continue to offer Pfizer, Pediatric Pfizer, and Moderna vaccines, and in special situations, Johnson & Johnson. Clinics will also offer boosters to anyone ages 5 and up. The COVID vaccine is free for anyone from any community. Please bring your vaccine card and insurance card. If you do not have health insurance, you can still have a vaccine. Public health nurses are available at every clinic for your questions or concerns. Booster shots are one more layer of protection against COVID-19, and they prevent a huge number of people from needing to go to the hospital. We want to protect our most vulnerable or simply unlucky neighbors from getting the virus. We can't afford to let our guard down. Dear Massachusetts, marijuana is now legal for adult use. Keep your kids and pets safe by keeping all cannabis products in child-resistant packaging. Store your cannabis in a lockbox out of sight and out of reach from your children and teach them that cannabis and alcohol are for adults only and that prescription medications are only meant for the person they are prescribed for. Brought to you by the Northampton Prevention Coalition, working together to protect the developing brain. NorthamptonPrevents.org This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this okay. is our regular segment, oh. Viacon Munoz Thank with you, Natalia Bill. Munoz. All right. <laughs> I, I think she's anxious to have the microphone, so it's yours, Natalia. Okay. You know, the thing about Roe versus Wade that's so infuriating beyond the obvious is, okay, what are men going to do about it? Because once again, this is something that affects women, but it's men who brought us to, to, to this point. And Amy Coney Barrett, you, you know, the handmaiden, she, uh, she's it's like she, it's as if she were a man, the way she voted. And so the call is, what are men going to do? And this is a town where everybody goes, oh, no, that's terrible that what that happened. And then some people will give to the ACLU. That's really great, Bill. The, did you get a yacht? What what happened with them? <laughs> Let's just <laughs> more proof. I that it, it's not your enemies who are the problem; it's your friends. <laughs> and and that's great that there's funding for organizations that work with women. But really, what are men doing? What are young men doing? And that's always for me the call for human rights. The human rights is not does not only fall on us who are oppressed even though, as usual, those who are oppressed are the ones who have to fight. But just as the civil rights movement, where Jews joined that movement, we need people to join this movement. We need men to join this movement. And not, you know, the New York Times had some stories, some whiny men, how abortion affected them. Oh, yeah, that, yeah, it's like, it was hard on me when, you know, my wife had an abortion. Yeah, okay, I don't really have patience for men's whining. What I want us to focus on is the health and safety of girls and women. In Massachusetts, they're safe, but they're not safe in other states. So what, is, what are all the woke people in Northampton? Are we going to do an aspirational uh, thing at the city council? Is that what's going to happen? Is that going to be Northampton's response? Well, there, there is a post-Roe agenda uh, and a post-Roe movement. Um, yeah, where? What? In, in Massachusetts. Who knows about try. it? Is it just like white people who know about it? Who knows about it? Where is it spreading? It's in the legislature. And, oh, okay. and, and, and it's also a, uh, 
uh, uh, yeah, I know. Yeah, and Baker said this, and yeah, and the DA said that, and it's really great. And the DA will not prosecute anybody. Right, but there, there's some but other things. But there's some other things that are kind of going to going to evolve here. For example, um, you, you haven't been in front of the microphone for a while. We still actually like you in front of the microphone when you're when she you're shall, speaking. She when you're speaking, she accidentally knocked she, over a cup of water. <laughs> yeah. We were just talking about Niagara, so we have our own little mini one going on here. Live radio, everyone. Yes. If we all get electrocuted, you'll all know why. Yeah. <laughs> so, Listen, but that is it, the call. It, it, that is the call. It is. It, it is, and that's it's a very important part. There's no question about. And it. what does it mean, Bill? What does it mean to for men when you hear about this? You know, what does that mean in terms of what are men gonna what are what are men gonna do about this? Seriously. What are men going to do about I don't see any men going up to City Hall in Northampton, for instance, saying this is wrong and we're going to raise money to send money to Missouri, to Louisiana, to this clinic or that clinic, or to create a national fund to help women get from one place to another to ensure that they have a safe abortion. I don't see men in Northampton doing anything. I don't. There are lots of wealthy men in this town. There are lots of, there are lots of activist men. Oh, my God, if you just took the Elizabeth Warren lovers... You know, that could fill up Main Street. What are you all doing? What are you all doing, Bill? I, I, I think it's important to take... Monty is, is doing a great job of <laughs> cleaning up the water. What Monty need to help clean up the mess that <laughs> What Monty is doing is cleaning up the mess that Natalia... Monty's doing woman's work. ...that Natalia created. Yeah. That is exactly what's Look happening here. Look this table is now. Oh, goodness. Uh, look... What can this, men do, this Bill? Is, I, 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 first of all, go to beyondrow.com. Uh, uh, secondly, there are... Oh, literally, beyondrow.com. In addition, there is a uh, uh, considerable and I think really important uh, analysis going on about how to react to the legislation that is going to be passed and that is in effect in some states now after the Supreme Court's decision. So, for example, you know, There'll be uh, a homicide prosecution, for example, in Alabama against a woman who had a miscarriage. Um, and maybe there'll be an indictment brought against not only her, but against some doctor in Massachusetts who prescribed via telemedicine for pills to induce an abortion uh, in uh, Alabama. For example, I mean, I just uh, mixed and matched some various kinds of possibilities, mm -hmm. scenarios. But there will be prosecutions. And then there will be the Supreme Court that may say, could say, wait a second, any, any, any procedure, any pill that induces uh, an abortion is a homicide because yeah. you're, you're violating the rights And we're coming up against gay rights people. also. We're coming yes. up against Yes, and you, want, and you mentioned before when they were uh, Thomas's yeah. uh, concurrence, really, really dangerous, really accurate, by the way. So I want to know, I do a call out to men. Not you guys, because you you girls are my sisters, and I know the, all the work you do. I seriously do know that. Well, I, I think men, they, men are crucial. I really don't know of other men who really do the hard work of, what are you doing so I have equal rights? What are you doing so my 20-year-old niece has equal rights? What the F are you all doing? And to be clear, I'm not talking to Monty and Bill. I'm just looking at you guys. I'm talking to the men out there, the liberals, the liberals. Yeah, liberal. Liberal. 
What do you want us yeah, to do? Yeah, moment of silence what do you, what do you, for the liberals. What do you, what do you, what do you want them? Oh, no, no, you guys do? have to figure it out. I'm not going to figure out how you can help me. You got to figure out how to help me. And I'm not talking, Bill, you know I love you. I'm not talking to you directly. <laughs> it kind of feels like I she's mean, looking at us directly. Monty, do you feel like that directly? As somebody who grew up with a ton of guilt of being a Catholic, um, <laughs> it always feels that way slightly. But Yeah, you know. and, and it's one thing that Jews and Catholics share is that guilt yeah, thing. Yeah, the guilt. Indeed. The guilt. And I'm Catholic, so look, at yeah. But it's it's... You guys out there in radio world, you guys have to join the fight and you have to figure out on your own how to do it. But the equal rights of women cannot continue to take a back seat, cannot continue to take a back seat for girls and women. Love you guys. Love you, Natalia. Thank yeah, you I know. so much. Thank you for your love. I think we should burn it down. Yeah, let's burn it down. Let's start. Are you an immigrant worried about your future? Do you want to change your life? At Center for New Americans, you can take English classes for free. They help immigrants with jobs, licenses, healthcare, as well as immigration and citizenship. CNA helps you create a better future. CNA is like a family you can trust that gives you hope and confidence that there is always support for various situations. They have dreams come true. Do you want to be a part of Center for New Americans? Visit our website at tnam.org. Call 413-587-0084. Center for New Americans, with offices in Amherst, Northampton, and Greenfield. The only live and local talk in the Valley and for the Valley. WHMP Northampton, WHMQ Greenfield, a Northampton radio group station. It's 10 o'clock.